millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Hey Dave. Yeah Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Welcome to Rule the World, the ultimate power of storytelling. Storytelling is what connects us as humans, and for brands, it is no different. A well-told story can effectively position your brand in the minds and hearts of your audience and can convert thoughts and feelings into results and revenue. On this show, we dive into the unique and recurring principles of world-class storytellers from every walk of life to help you level up your storytelling skills and knowledge to drive real, measurable results for you and your organization. Here's your host, Paul Furlong. Hello and welcome to Rule the World, the art and power of storytelling. Today's guest is Roger S.H. Shulman, the BAFTA-winning and Oscar-nominated screenwriter and producer. Roger's credits include Shrek, Melissa and Joey, Jonas, and the sequels to Disney's Jungle Book, Mulan and Bambi. Here, Roger talks about building connection, characters, tension and conflict into his stories, as well as some useful tools to help plan and build your story. So, uh, Roger, welcome to Rule the World, the art and power of storytelling. Thank you for joining us today. Oh, you're very welcome. I wonder if we could start with you telling us a little bit about you uh, and what you spend your days doing. Oh, sure. Um, Well, just to sort of briefly tell you where I come from, um, I was born in in Brooklyn, New York, which... uh, I believe is a disproportionate source of um, fun and talent, and um, I'm I'm uh, grateful to have been spawned there. And I always wanted to be a writer. There were other things I wanted to be too, but that seemed to stick from a very early age. And um, I tried to figure out what kind of writing I could do that wouldn't completely freak out my parents as being uh, a totally unreliable way to make a living. I was, you know, trying to please them and myself. So I found that I had a passion for journalism and because, you know, you can get a steady paycheck if back then you could anyway. Journalism is kind of a thing of the past today. And uh, so I pursued it. I got a master's degree in it and I became uh, a reporter and a writer for a lot of different big outlets, Business Week and 
uh, Newsweek and UPI and such. And um, but I always had a sort of a hidden dream, which was to write for television and the movies. And um, eventually I had the opportunity to do that through journalism by doing an interview with Steve Martin, the, the writer, actor and comedian. And um, because of that interview, I was able to sort of cozy up to him after the article came out in the magazine I was working for and tell him that I was a comedy writer. And he said, I know, I had you checked out before I said I would do the interview, which tells you something about him. And um, without going into the entire story, as entertaining as it is, uh, he ended up hiring me to uh, uh, to write for a TV show. And uh, I took a sort of a leave of absence from where I was at the time as a journalist. And um, I never really went back. Uh, I had some time to prove myself from the East Coast to the West Coast here in the States. And um, although I still do some journalism, some print writing, it's been 99% screenwriting since then. And so depending upon what I'm working on, my day nowadays is either staring hopelessly at a, a laptop screen, uh, taking breaks for the bathroom and meals, or if I'm on a TV show, if I'm actually in production, uh, because I also have run TV shows and <clears throat> um, served in various capacities on them, then that's a very different daily existence. I spend the entire day in one room, uh, but with a bunch of other people, all trying to, you know, I guess to put it ideally, do the very best we can to take something that we think either isn't working or is not working as well as it could, and in a very limited time, rewrite it or polish it or do whatever has to be done to get it into shootable shape um, before the deadline. And at the same time, work on the next idea, the idea that came before it, two ideas, the two ideas that are coming after it, and so on. That's, a, that's much more, I, I kind of think of that as being akin to being in a nuclear submarine. You kind of submerge and you're under the water for six you know, months. Um, and then you, you come out into the light of day and blink and that what you've done is, uh, is passable. Right now, um, I'm not on uh, any TV show. Uh, I'm writing a movie um, and I'm also uh, spending a lot of energy in what I consider to be the next phase of my professional life, which is uh, teaching in one way or another because I've just had this overwhelming urge to <laughs> I'm trying to think of a way to say this that doesn't sound totally pretentious and egocentric, but um, I honestly have this overwhelming urge to talk about the bones of what I do because so many people ask me about it and I have ideas. And like any writer or artist, when I have an idea, I have this insatiable urge to share it and express myself. So out of purely selfish reasons, I'm trying to um, – you know, I have a website and I'm coaching and I'm teaching uh, at university and that kind of thing. And um, and that's that's pretty much it. Walking the dogs is the only other thing. <laughs> Excellent. So you're you're now teaching the the craft of storytelling. Is that right? Yes. Um, 
I became convinced some time ago, based on really solid evidence and my own instinct, that as human beings, we're wired to tell stories. And by that, I mean, it goes way beyond we have a pension for telling stories. We like to tell stories. We need to tell stories. It's at the, um, the biological level. We must tell stories. We must listen to stories. We must share stories just as we must breathe and eat and poop. And um, because of that very low-level firmware, I think storytelling is a skill and a passion that almost anyone who works needs to, <clears throat> needs to be aware of and needs to develop. And um, that's what I'm trying to do. Uh, um, I'm trying to I, – I have a, a website called um, – writercoach.net. And I'm trying to do something I, I don't see anywhere else, which is twofold. One is to help bring the craft and the art and the passion of storytelling to any kind of writing uh, or expression. And also, and this is a little more touchy-feely, to help those who are professional writers or work in a, a similar capacity to manage the the, the stress and the art and the expression of their lives. So what I'm really trying to say is I partner with writers not only to bring life to their writing, but to bring their writing to their lives so they can actually write their own personal story um, of, of their lives without having to write it down. Um, so there's kind of a – there's the writing side and there's the coaching side. So um, do you think then, uh, given that your whole life has – revolved around storytelling and, and will continue to, that you could give us a definition of story. Yeah, I change that all the time, to be honest with you, um, because like many other things, like one judge here in the States once said about pornography or obscenity, he said, I can't define it, but I know it when I see it. And um, story is a you know, it could be easily defined, I suppose, as a list of connected events that involve characters and make a point. I think that those things are all necessary uh, to narrative. Um, they can't be unrelated, but they don't have to be related in, in a very obvious way. It doesn't have to be about the same character appearing in every part of the story. Um, there was the the movie Traffic where uh, events connected the parts of the story and event. There was the Wizard of Oz in which one character um, was the through line for many disparate locations. Um, and I think you can even tell story through theme and intangibles. You know, it's more than possible to tell a good story in which the same characters and in which characters and location are never repeated. Um, but there has to be a connection of some kind. Otherwise, I think it's a series of random events. It's kind of a, um, you know, a waking dream or something. And I wouldn't call it a story, even though it still might be art. Uh, it needs to have tension uh, to be a story. There needs to be something that ultimately can be resolved. Um, so that relates to things like your heartbeat and music and um, percussion. What I mean is a pattern. 
that changes and ultimately is ended in a conscious way. You can't just be some random splice out of life. That's not a story either. Um, in other words, what I'm really saying is a beginning, a middle, and an end. And um, whether they're human beings or aliens or objects or the weather, it needs to have characters, which to me are the embodiment of a series of traits that represent your theme and some of the things that are happening in the story. So that's a, you know, that's a, a lot of words, uh, but ultimately I think you kind of know that you're looking or listening to a story when your brain and your heart are saying, what happens next? If you're not saying what happens next, you either have something that isn't a story or you have a poorly written story <laughs> in which you're bored and you should probably get some popcorn. And that's where I guess the conflict part of the, the story comes in to, to keep you on, your, on the edge of your seat to follow the rest of the story and want to know where it happens, what happens next. Yes, I mean, that's essential, but there's, there's, um, there's, it's greater than that as well. Uh, conflict has reasons other than keeping you interested, and there are things that keep you interested other than conflict. Um, I don't believe in having scenes in a piece that don't pull their weight in terms of the plot. There are many very popular and successful movies by writers much better than I am that have scenes in them that don't pull their weight in terms of plot. There are these kinds of intermezzos and interludes and dream sequences and uh, repetitions and editing tricks and all kinds of things I've seen in movies that if I really had to analyze them, I would say, you know, you could cut that out of the movie or the TV show or the book and nobody would really know that something was missing, but it wouldn't be the same. It was a really personal expression of some artist's vision and i really respect that um but it's not my style you know coming from a background of journalism i had a professor who said to me pretend that every word you put on the page costs you five dollars and see how quickly you cut out all the needless words in your story and so I, i've kind of been ingrained uh, you know indoctrinated into this um religion of being efficient spare uh, in, in my writing, I try, I fail all the time, but I try. And because that's my, my bent, I love it when a story goes from bing to bang to boom, you know, A, B, C, uh, not necessarily in an obvious way, but in a compelling way. And I think that's what, you know, that's my interpretation of what you were talking about when you said conflict, because, you know, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? How is he going to get out of that? I didn't expect that to happen, but it makes sense now that I see it. Um, but along the way, there are other things that hold on to my interest all the time. There are jokes and um, getting to know a character and starting to care about her means that um, I'll watch her do anything. You know, um, Even if it doesn't seem to be contributing to the story at the moment, which is often a good thing for writing. In other words, if it's subtle, if it's done artfully, then – uh, I, I'm still watching because I like her. I want to know what's going to happen to her. I hope she's going to be okay. Or conversely, I want to see him pay for what he did. I want to, you know, he, he needs to die or be somehow uh, punished. 
So um, lots of things hold me to my seat, but you're right. Confidence is definitely one of them. So if I've got it right there, we've talked about uh, connection, characters, tension, and conflict. Is that right? Um, yeah, let me, let me think here to see if we've touched on all of them. Uh, the connection between the events, the characters that sort of carry that connection and carry the theme of what you're talking about. We mentioned conflict, um, and I guess tension is kind of part and parcel of all of that. Tension is this sort of, again, almost indescribable thing that is um, a feeling that you have, you know, when something is, I think, I don't know if a scientist would say this or not, but I, I, from my geeky days, I somehow feel that a scientist wouldn't argue with me if I said tension was stored potential energy. So, you know, you've got a spring and then you press the spring, you compress it with your hands. You've got tension on the spring. And from a story point of view, I think it's the same thing. Um, you need to expend energy to stop that spring from going into its rest state. And that gives you, and that gets tiring, but it's also very involving. So if you're watching, you know, a movie, let's say, and you're feeling like you're expending energy watching it, then it's, I think, probably a good sign that you're experiencing tension in a good way. Um, the movie is involving you. It, it shouldn't be a passive experience. It should take some spiritual and mental energy to watch it. You should be engrossed. And I think that's why sometimes with a really, really good movie, you walk out of the theater and go, whoo, you know, <laughs> um, even if it's not an action movie, you know, even if it was really just deep because you have had a little bit of a workout and, um, that's, you know, tension in life is an unpleasant thing, but tension in a story is fantastic. It's really pleasurable. So, yeah, I think we've touched on all four of those. So once we've got those four, how is it that you go about structuring your story? Well, it, in a way, that's kind of two questions uh, to me. One is how in real life do you actually structure a story? How does it actually happen? And the other is, how is it supposed to happen theoretically? And to take the second part of that first, you look at it as a piece of narrative, which means it's going to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. Most Hollywood movies have three acts. Some have five. And you can do whatever you want. You know, I'm not a big proponent of hard and fast, unbreakable rules when it comes to structure. I am a proponent of structure. Um, that I do think is a kind of a hard and fast thing. It's not just whatever, you know, whatever piece of chewing gum happens to stick to the wall in the order in which it sticks to the wall. Um, so you don't have to start at the beginning, but you need to start somewhere. And uh, the beginning is often a great place because it comes right there at the beginning <laughs> and um, you start taking those four elements you talked about, connection, character, tension, and conflict, and ordering them, using them as you need to, to create narrative. So you start with a beginning in which you describe whatever world it is your story is set in on a typical day. You have to sort of tell the audience what the rules are, which could be a very complicated thing if you're writing a science fiction piece, 
Or a very, very simple thing. If you're writing a sort of a, just a present day character story that takes place in some town somewhere on a day that has some weather with some people that look to all you know, outward appearances to be typical. So it, it may take you a second to establish this, or it may take you 10 minutes you know, to really tell the audience exactly what the rules are. And then you start messing with things. And um, that first messing with the thing is got to be important, you know, seminal, involving. It has to reveal character. It has to do a lot of things at once. It has to put, you know, has to crank up the tension. Got to introduce the conflict. Got to tell you about the character, and it's got to keep you connected. So it's it's really you, your story has got to go, be going on all cylinders right off the bat, as soon as you've established things. And um, from there, I guess it's such um, so ingrained in me that I don't know how much of what I'm saying is obvious. But just for the record, things develop. You begin to form relationships between your protagonist and your antagonist or supporting members of the cast that are important. Um, The trouble gets worse. You get to a point which is considered writer's hell where you're in the middle of the story where things have to sort of get even worse because you've tried to fix them and it's only made things more catastrophic. Um, And the reason I say that's hell is because if you've got a good story, you're starting off pretty strong and then you've got to keep people's interest by getting even stronger without getting ridiculous, without pointing towards the resolution but still with leaving some gap that they can't guess at that will in fact resolve the story. It's very surgical. It's, uh, there's a lot of, a lot of, you know, deafness to it. They say that most TV shows and movies, if they fail, they don't generally fail in act two. And then finally you have to have a real crescendo. You have to build the story to something that solves all of your problems at once and resolves character, resolves tension, resolves conflict. Um, doesn't resolve connection, but you know keeps it. And it all has to be done in a way that isn't real, but feels real. And isn't necessarily. Well, I let me let me let me restate that. Isn't what everybody is guessing will happen. So it's. It's a lot of jobs to do, um, and so they, they ought to be done in little pieces uh, over time. You know, um, you can do it very simply and crudely at first, and then you go over it and over it and over it, trying to um, make it more realistic, more uh, clear without being obvious, more surprising without being random and arbitrary. And then at some point in the process, you throw all of it away because it stinks and you start over again. And then eventually, eventually you finish. And uh, I think um, uh, Jim, it's funny how his name just jumped out of my head. Mr. Lassiter of Pixar and Disney. Mm-hmm. What's his first name? Is it John? Um, yes, John Lassiter. Thank you. He said, you never really finish a movie. You just release it. And uh, I think that's true. At some point, you're out of time and you say, here it is. Go with God. 
Excellent. So in, in, a, in a practical way, um, what tools do you use to help you structure that story with the beginning, middle, end and, and all, of, all of the connection characters and everything that you're putting into there? What, do you, what physical tools do you use or that you have in your arsenal that you help with structuring it? Yeah. yeah. Well, now you've really put dessert down in front of me. Maybe I should say pudding because um, I'm a geek. When I was a journalist, I was uh, a technology reporter, a science and technology reporter most of the time. So I love all that stuff. And um, I, th I find it most useful because it uh, enables almost limitless procrastination, uh, which is, after all, our goal as writers. Um, as I said earlier, I like structure. So any tool that helps me structure and analyze and synthesize, I really welcome. Um, I usually start, you mentioned mind mapping, and I'm a big fan of it. For those who don't know, it's, it's, just a, it's a simple concept in which a central idea has spokes, like on a wheel, and everything comes off that central idea, and then the spokes have their own sub-ideas, and you can have sub-sub-ideas, and it all gets grouped, and you end up with what ends up looking something sort of like a, a, a spider that's been run over by a station wagon or um, uh, some kind of bacterium. But what I like about that is it has an organic look, which is the way people think. You know, When we think structure, we tend to picture a grid. But a mind map has a kind of loosey-goosey look, and um, the brain supposedly responds better to that. You can also add pictures. You're encouraged to add pictures, change typefaces, uh, color. It's to be as artsy as possible because that way it appeals to what they used to call both sides of your brain. And there are some very good uh, mind mapping softwares. And what I really love about them is that the underpinning of a lot of the good ones is a, um, a markup language called OPML, Outline Processing Markup Language, I think it stands for. And because they have an underlying common um, code, you can export your mind map into an outliner or some word processors or some strict processors. And so without wasting energy, you go from this really amorphous looking mind map with a lot of detail into a really rigid linear outline that you can then start paring down and adding to in a way that more resembles narrative. And then you can take that and put it into, if you're doing a treatment, into a word processor, or if you're going straight to script for some reason, you can put that in certain word, uh, I'm sorry, script processors, and uh, you can kind of, you know, carry your water from all the way from the river to, you know, a cup of tea at the other end. I really enjoy taking different angles of attack at that kind of work. Um, it's fun. You know, and while writing can be fun, too, it's really hard work for me. So anything I can do to lighten it up and give it some fun without actually slowing down the process, in fact, speeding up the process, making it more efficient, I really grow very fond of. So, um, you know, there are mind mapping um 
programs that have lots of good keyboard shortcuts. So you can just start literally brainstorming right on the screen. Um, you can, uh, a good outliner lets you slide things up, down, indent and outdent them really fast. And once you become proficient with that tool, um, it has a really striking impact on your vision. You know, you can see the story take shape literally as things that are more detailed or less important move to the right and the, you know, the tent poles of the story move to the left. And when you collapse an outline, well, you know, voila, there, there's your beginning, your middle, and your end in three lines. And as you expand it, there's your act one and your, you know, there's, there's your, your scene one and your scene two and your scene three and so on and so forth. Um, by the time I get to using a script processor, I really want to have done so much work that in terms of research, structuring, outlining, that I'm really focusing on dialogue at that point. That's the best job for a script processor to me, that and formatting, but formatting is this, you know, unfortunate necessity. Um, if I'm looking at a screen that has the script processor on it, and I'm not sure what the next plot point is, even if I want to depart from it, then I've jumped the gun. You know, it's premature. That's the way I work. I like to be what I call a front loader, where, you know, there's so much preparation before I step on stage that the audience doesn't know about that they look at me up there dancing and say, wow, he really, he really makes it look easy. Or even better than that, that really is easy. I could do that. You know, that's like, I think that's the ultimate compliment. So once we've got the structure and we've got the plot, um, we've talked about characters. So how do you go about bringing your characters to life? You know, you're starting to get into an area that sinks just below the surface of the consciousness of the writer, I think. Um, so I can tell you what I know, and I can also tell you that there's a lot going on that I really am not aware of. Because when you say bring to life, you're talking about, you know, creating the appearance of life. That's, you know, the hardest and the most important job an artist has. And I'm not sure how it happens. Uh, but I can tell you that a lot of work helps. Um, the character comes to life <clears throat> when I know who he is. I don't have to know all of him, just as I don't have to know all of myself. But I try to prepare by writing a biography of the character. And I don't need to, you know, be a method actor about it. I don't write, you know, 1,500 pages about, the, you know, from when he was born. But... I do write a few pages about um, the kind of person that he or she is and a lot of the facts around uh, his or her life that don't necessarily become part of the piece but inform it. Where they were born, how many kids in the family, what their interests were, and so on. And then from a psychological and a spiritual point of view, I, I have a tool that I like to use well, I like to use because I made it up um, that I, but I offer it and talk about it with some of my clients 
that I call the, the iceberg, where there are certain components of the character that are conscious and above the surface of the ocean, and then certain needs and desires, core beliefs, and sort of ultimate emotional truths that are below the surface. And so even though I, as the writer, I'm aware of them, the character in the piece is not. And I think that might be the single biggest thing that brings a character to life when you're watching a movie or a television show or whatever, and the character is being motivated by things that the character is unaware of. It really feels human because, in my opinion, because I believe that people go through life basically three quarters blind. You know, we make the best decisions we can. We assess the circumstances as best we can, and then we do something. And I think nine times out of 10, we did it for reasons we were totally unaware of. Things that happened to us in our childhood, chemicals in our brain, something in the corner of our vision, you know, all kinds of things that in fact tell me that human beings are kind of out of control in a world that's out of control. And if that feeling comes across from a character and you're sitting there and you feel you know a little bit more than the character about that character, you say, oh, yeah, oh, I know what he's going to do. I hope he doesn't do that. And that to me is success. You're now thinking of this character as someone alive. So and then if there were one other thing I would add, I would say a few choice details. If you start overloading a character with all kinds of tics and mannerisms and quirky ways of dressing, it's clearly some artist's, you know, artifact. But just a few well-chosen, consistent details, I think, really help bring a character to life. And sometimes you can see that in the writing, but often you can see it in the performance. You know, if you watch certain performances, I'm thinking of Al Pacino's performance in that movie where he played the blind retired military guy <laughs> i can't remember the name of it now do you sense of a woman yes thank you scent of a woman um the way he interpreted the lines uh he does that a lot there was a movie that i didn't think was very good but it was called the devil's advocate also with al pacino and he obviously made this decision that in playing satan as a businessman he wanted to bring something that was a little bit underworldly to it. So if you watch the performance, you'll notice that every once in a while, he darts his tongue just a little bit like a snake. And I couldn't decide whether that was the worst piece of you know, of mannered acting I'd ever seen or the best. <laughs> and because of the whole world of the movie and how kind of slightly over the top it was, I decided that I really loved it because it fit in that world. Um, so it's not always up to the writer, you know, it's a collaborative medium. So there are times that bringing a character to life is going to be handled by a really good actor who, you know, he isn't throwing the script out. He's not disparaging the other artists that are working with him. He's bringing to it value that nobody else could in the way he holds his body the way he delivers a line, um, you know, I'm thinking of Captain Quig, played by Humphrey Bogart in the movie The um, The Cane Mutiny. It was it was written that he would have 
these steel balls in his hand that he would manipulate whenever he started to go crazy. But the way Humphrey Bogart handles them is a beautiful piece of bringing a character to life. So um, how do you make sure that the story you're telling talks to the audience that you're supposed to be telling it to? Uh, well, I have two answers to that. And I'll, the first one probably makes a lot of sense, and I think it's mandatory to say it. And the second one I'm not as sure about, but I have this instinct that it's closer to the truth. Um, the first answer is you make sure that your story talks to your audience by knowing your audience. Um, you need to sit down, especially in business writing, and especially if you're trying to sell something. And by sell something, I don't necessarily mean a product or a service. It often is that. But you might be trying to sell a message, um, a value. If it's an in-house corporate video, you might be trying to indoctrinate your employees with a set of values that will motivate a set of behaviors. This is how this company works. This is the kind of person who works for this company. This is how employees of this company behave to one another and to the public. And you need to know who you're talking to, naturally. Um, first, you need to know the demographics of it. You know, are we talking to young people? Are we talking to middle-aged people? Are we talking to a big mix? What about gender? What about socioeconomics? Um, what about language? Uh, what kind of experiences have these people tended to have? What are they expert in? So I don't have to go over that stuff. It would only be condescending. What don't they know anything about? So it would behoove me to explain in, you know, in simple but intelligent terms what the heck I'm trying to say. If it's something that they have no reason to have had a lot of contact with. Um, and then you can go a little deeper into what your audience is also. What are their – do they share values? Do they share a set of core beliefs? Um, what is the right way to tell a particular message to this particular audience? You might want to state it negatively. You might want to scare them if that's appropriate. Or you might want to be uplifting and supportive. You can tell the same exact message either way. Um, you can tell people how they're going to be safe or you can tell them why they're in danger. You can tell them how they're going to be happier or you can tell them how they're going to be less sad depending upon where they start and who they are and what words really um, you know, engage and provoke them. So you know, it's like I said, it's pretty obvious. You make sure your story talks to your audience by knowing your audience. But the other the other answer, which I actually think may be more useful, is to know yourself better. Um, you know, you're never going to know exactly whom you're speaking to. First of all, nobody ever gets to know anybody else. There's a lot of data. We're in the age of big data. And isn't it surprising, considering how much big data is being shuttled back and forth and stolen from you and manip manipulated and used by the big companies, isn't it surprising how poor they still are at guessing what you want? Why, after I buy a pair of shoes, do I have to watch ads for the exact same shoes for the next six months? I bought them already. Doesn't that seem elementary? But they do it. You know, why do they think because I read one novel of World War II, I'm interested in anything military? That's not very subtle. 
It's supposed to be the result of incredible sifting of big data. You never get to know anybody. I think if you get to know yourself and what your core values are and what you're trying to say from those core values, you'll reach an unconscious connection with your audience because ultimately there's only one thing we're sure of. We're all human beings. We're that particular species. And if you can get specific with yourself, you'll touch people in an authentic way. Naturally, you have to make sure that your language is appropriate, all those other details I mentioned earlier. But if you're really speaking authentically from your heart, I think, frankly, and I'm not sure why, that goes a lot farther toward making sure your story talks to your audience than anything you can do remotely. You know, those to me feel a little bit more like tricks, you know, kind of the worst of advertising. Hey, I'm hip like you. And I want you to do something hip like me. It's, you know, it's just, you can smell that stuff from a mile away. But if you really say, look, I don't know what's hip you do, but I want to tell you about something that I really love. You tell me if you love too. If there's a way to get that across, then all of a sudden you're in a conversation, you know, and you're not pretending anymore. So um, often stories told in business don't have the same kind of conflict uh, as you get in, say, a feature film. Often there's not a, a villain in, say, a business story. So how would you suggest that you go about externalizing any conflict that may be in a, in a business story? You know, I just heard your question, so I don't know for sure, but I have a hunch that if I thought about it for a while, I might be able to make a case that there are villains in business stories just as often as there are in entertainment. Um, And the reason I say that is because there really aren't that many villains in entertainment. There are antagonists, but there aren't that many villains. And this is what I mean. A villain is an exaggerated, you know, avatar for a human being who represents in many ways the worst of us, the devil in all of us. And there are a lot of movies today that have villains, but that's because we're making a lot of movies out of comic books. If you were to remove the comic book movies from today's, you know, offerings, first of all, you'd have almost no movies left. But let's put that aside for a second. The movies that were left probably wouldn't have villains in them. You'd have James Bond. He has a villain, but he is kind of a comic book character. And, um, and you might have some fable-like movies. Uh, I'm jumping to It's a Wonderful Life where there's a guy in that movie uh, who's a true villain. But that's also kind of a bigger-than-life fantastic movie. Most sort of mature dramas, which aren't, or comedies, which aren't really made much anymore, um, for, for very solid commercial reasons. Um, they don't have villains. They have antagonists. And I think you can find the antagonist in your business story just as easily as you could in your entertainment type story. Um, I don't know exactly what a good example might be, but generally, if you have a product or a service or a message that you're trying to get across, it's there to solve a problem. And it's there to correct something. It could be something small, like how to use this photocopier correctly without it jamming, 
or it could be something big like what does our company do about starving people in the world or children who don't have shoes so once you once you have your hand on that problem you have your antagonist your job i think from a narrative and a storytelling point of view and this is kind of where you know my skills come in is to is to bring that protagonist to life is to create a character out of that protagonist it may quite literally be a character um an actual person in your video or uh commercial or whatever it might be who who might feel very real but actually is there to represent the problem that will go unsolved and will only grow and become worse unless you do or buy or believe in the thing that's being sold um or it might be something that's a little more abstract you know the problem could be a feeling it could be the weather um if you're doing something as simple as a commercial to sell a tire then uh it depends upon the kind of tire you're selling but if you're selling one of those tires that works really well in the rain well you know what your antagonist is you have a villain you have deadly rain which can kill you and your family that's a real story with a real villain and if you want to be obvious about it which is often a good idea in a commercial um then you see <clears throat> you see uh any of a hundred ways of dis- of of um expositing what it's like to have the wrong tire in a rainstorm um if it's something that you want to be more subtle about or maybe the differences between good and bad aren't quite so stark then you be more subtle more artful in your writing but you still have a problem and you still have a solution for it and um you know business uh content isn't really a place for irony and um that sort of slice of life feeling that philosophical feeling that we're all in this kind of crazy boat together in a terrible storm and that's what life is you don't wax, <clears throat> pardon me you don't wax that way in most of these business videos so in some ways i think it's actually easier um to be clear about it if you if you have the right storytelling tools in your box then it would be to write a movie that you want to kind of leave novelistically open ended you know um is, does that answer your question certainly does thank you very much so i'm yeah. i'm just aware of time roger so i wonder if i could just ask you a couple of quick fire questions sure anything uh, so to your mind who is the greatest storyteller ever and why uh, i'm going to give you two answers to that <laughs> and one of them is really cute and the other one is really boring and typical the first answer is i want to say god and by that i don't necessarily mean um you know the deity what i mean is there are so many wonderful deeply felt entertaining stories in the bible that i sometimes read it for entertainment you know i read it as literature and people who know these things say that the version of the bible that most people use nowadays and i'm talking about the old and new testaments at the moment cuz those are the ones i'm most familiar with um 
you know, that they were, you know, sort of co-written and rewritten and revised over the millennia by many, many people. And that's why I think it's so powerful. It's, it's a written down version of the very deepest fables we have. And so you can find endless symbolism and importance in those stories. And yet to hold people's attention, they have really great production values in them. You know, a man has been commanded to kill his only son to prove how much he loves his God. I mean, that is completely unresolvable. <laughs> it's a fantastic story, and I used to think I knew what it was about, and then I read other interpretations that said, yes, it's about that, but it's also about this, and it's also about that. And so that's like, I, I, you know, I just from a storytelling point of view, that's the first thing I'd say. And then the second thing I would say is just my favorite writer is Mark Twain. And I think, um, like I said, that's kind of boring. It's an easy answer because... He's so obviously fantastic. What I love about Mark Twain is he has very important things to say, and he never says them in a very important way. He, he was able to create this, in, this light touch that I am so jealous of, and yet not simply tell a tale for its fluffy entertainment value. You can have somebody who's got a light touch and tell something that's fun, and you can have somebody who's important and says something important. But to find a writer who can do both at the same time, I don't know how many of those there are. And I just uh, – and then there were other things about him I just really love. I just love how he, he marketed and branded himself so early on. You know, And you might think that that's artificial and uh, uh, shallow of him. I think it's brilliant. You know, he was able to become a success while he was alive. And I, I as a writer, I say bravo. So, so beside all of the, uh, the writings of Mark Twain, can you recommend any good books, websites, blogs, podcasts that are specifically about storytelling that would help us to become better at it? Hmm. Um, yes. Uh, there are a lot of books on screenwriting, which is my specialty. Um, I, I think most of them are no good. I tend to like Field. If you're interested in screenwriting or the structure behind it, it's very traditional. It's seminal. It's foundational. Everybody's reacted to it over the years. And I just found that when I read it, I said, yeah, that, that makes sense. Oh, okay. I get that. And I think that's that's you know when it comes to an instruction manual, those are the reactions you want. Um, I can't tell you it's a gripping read, but um, it's it's really good. Um, in terms of things online, well, for I mean I know this sounds uh, you know this sounds a little bit brown nosing, but your podcast is excellent. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate the compliment. So. Well, you know, it is a compliment, and it, even the existence of it is a good thing because I don't see that much that pairs storytelling with the harder um, – you know, when I say harder, I mean uh, you know, the more concrete commercial interests that you address. Um, in other words, you and I are kind of on the same page, and I like that. In terms of websites, there are a lot of websites about writing. Everybody who's a writer has got one because they need something to do to avoid writing. And the ones that I actually find the most interesting are the ones that are attached to the big script processors. 
So this is what I mean specifically. Um, Final Draft is a script processor. I've done a couple of courses about on lynda.com. And so I had to get really familiar with their website. And there is another script processor that isn't as popular, but I like very much too, called Movie Magic Screenwriter. And if you go to their websites, it's generally for technical support or to buy something that they sell. But to support themselves um, intellectually uh, in terms of uh, to be more compelling, they have a lot of really good information about about screenwriting and about writing in general. A lot of guest writers that have a lot of interesting articles. Because it's not just one writer's point of view, this is my truth about writing or storytelling. Because it has such an eclectic assortment of voices, it's it's really – and they have no skin in the game. It's like as long as you're writing and using our software, we're happy. So we don't care what kind of story paradigm you like. Going to those places, it's really interesting. It's something different all the time, and it's all quality because they vet it. They curate it. So I, I, like, I like those you know, off the top of my head. And then can I, uh, can I mention mine? Yeah, of course. That was My next question was going to be where can we find out more about oh. you? Where can we find you online? Um, I have a, a new website called um, writercoach.net where I call myself the writer coach. And I couldn't believe that the website domain was available. So to me, that's kismet. And um, I have a blog where I write about writing and things related to writing. And, uh, and then my services are available there and comments from other people who may like or dislike what I have to say. Um, so I'm hoping to turn that into something that is a good answer to your question. Where can I go to read a book storytelling? And because I'm focusing on writing that is not entertainment writing, primarily, I think it might be particularly apt for people who like your podcast. Well, thank you for that. And thank you very much for your time today and for sharing your insights and your knowledge with us. Um, I hope we can maybe do this again sometime. Oh, it'd be my pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. No problem at all. Great speaking to you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Rule the World. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. And visit weareopusmedia.com for more resources based on today's topic, as well as access to more episodes that will help you develop your storytelling abilities. That's weareopusmedia.com. Thank you, and see you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 